I don't know what kind of coloring books you're doing, but uh, um, Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by my newfound co-workers. So I assume now that we're all working at home, you guys consider anybody who is in your home one of your co-workers. And I have this uh, furry four-legged co-worker who keeps opening doors every time I am on a call so that I cannot block out the sound. So if you hear a lot of background noise, that would be my furry coworker once again opening up the door. Yeah, I have two <laughs> furry coworkers here and same. They they really don't know where they're supposed to be at any time, right? Because there are so many people home. There are so many options. Usually there aren't <laughs> so many options. Well, so that is right. And in fact, part of what the problem is, is at one point we had four people in my house four Zoom calls going on and the dog was going from room to room trying to figure out which Zoom call would give him the most love. And so he just kept opening the door and not closing it behind him. It's rather rude. Anyway, I'm Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health, and I am here with Dr. Jennifer Ryder. Hello. From the Department of Epidemiology at the BU School of Public Health, and Dr. Laura Sampson from the BU School of Public Health Department of Epidemiology. Hi. And we are no longer in the Godly Studio because, like you, we are at home. At least we hope you are. Although, by the time you listen to this, who knows? Maybe by then we're all back to normal. Who knows? But as a reminder, if you could go on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org, that is BU's hub for lifelong learning. You'll find all kinds of good stuff there. Also, if you would be so kind, go give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever podcast app you use as it helps people to find us. So now onto the show. Today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we're going to look at a study on fish oil and cardiovascular disease. Then in our second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to talk about a controversial paper on the proportional hazards assumption, which I admit is a little in the weeds, but I just found it really interesting and I thought it was worth us talking through. And then in our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we will get into some things that make us laugh out loud or I will find you all a bicycle route version of Elvis Presley to look at. So let's get into segment one, where we will talk about an article on the impact of fish oil and cardiovascular disease. It was, again, like the last one that we did, it was published in the BMJ, and this one is going to have some other similarities to our last recording. And it was entitled Associations of Habitual Fish Oil Supplementation with Cardiovascular Outcomes and All-Cause Mortality, Evidence from a Large Population-Based Cohort Study by first author Jiha Li of the Department of Epidemiology at Southern Medical University in Guangdong, China. So here are three headlines that I found on this one. So Medscape says benefits of fish oil resurface, but do they hold water? Question mark. Nursing Time says fish oil supplements, quote, linked to lower risk of heart disease and death. And Business Standard said fish oil supplements linked to lower risk of heart disease, comma, early death, colon, study. So make of that what you will, but Jen, can you walk us through what it is they found and what this study was all about? Sure. 
Fish oil is a source of long-chain omega-3 fatty acids. So those are a type of polyunsaturated fat. And two of these specific omega-3s have been recommended for supplementation in both the U.S. and the U.K. So I'm only going to say these once, so mm-hmm. pay attention. Okay. Icosapentaenoic acid mm-hmm. and docosahexaenoic acid. Those are the two that have been recommended. So both animal studies and epidemiology studies, as well as randomized controlled trials, have all shown a protective role of omega-3s in cardiovascular disease prevention, but other trials have then shown no association. A very recently published trial, VITAL, so that's the vitamin D and omega-3 trial, included 25,871 participants. They were followed for a median of five years, and they found that omega-3s were associated with a reduction in risk of heart attack specifically, but not with overall cardiovascular disease events. So the hazard ratio for cardiovascular disease was 0.92 with a confidence interval of 0.8 to 1.06. So the authors of this study cite the need for observational studies to complement the existing evidence, and also they specifically point out the need to evaluate potential effect measure modification, which we'll talk a bit about, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. So the study population used here was the UK Biobank, which we've been talking about a lot lately. Just to review, it recruited about a half a million participants. They were aged 40 to 69, which is interesting because that's not the same age range as in the last paper we discussed mm-hmm. on the, the podcast. But anyway, from the general population at 22 different assessment centers across England, Scotland, and Wales. They did a baseline questionnaire on like an iPad, a face-to-face interview, there was a physical exam involved, and there were also biological specimens that were collected. In this study, they excluded participants who had prevalent cardiovascular disease, cancer, or those who did not provide exposure data or who withdrew from the study. So there were 1,299 participants who withdrew. So that left them with a sample size of 427,678 participants. The exposure was measured on the baseline questionnaire, and they asked, do you regularly take any of the following list of supplements? And there were a number of different options. One of them was fish oil, and the participants just marked yes or no. The primary outcomes were incidence and mortality of cardiovascular disease, as well as all-cause mortality. Their secondary outcomes included incidence and mortality from myocardial infarction and stroke. They linked to death registers and hospital admissions data, and the CVD events were all based on ICD-10 codes. They followed the participants for mortality through February 2018 in both England and Wales and January 2017 for Scotland. There was somewhat shorter follow-up for incidence data that went just through March of 2017. In terms of covariates, there were a number of variables that were collected at baseline. So they had a number of sociodemographic factors, lifestyle, including dietary intake of vegetables and fruit and oily fish, comorbidities, drug use, and use of other supplements. 
They used multiple imputation with chained equations to assign missing covariate values. They did not exclude participants with, with missing data in their primary analysis. They used Cox models that were initially adjusted just for age and sex, and then also more multivariable models that included many of those other covariates. They did a number of stratified analyses because they were interested in whether the effects varied by a number of factors. So they looked at sex, age, obesity, the consumption of oily fish at least two times per week, physical activity, smoking, diabetes, hypertension, statin use, aspirin use, and they evaluated all of the interactions by looking at the cross-product term for the modifying variable and fish oil supplement use. They did some sensitivity analyses that excluded participants who took other supplements. They also did some lagged analyses to address reverse causation. So those were lagged by two years. And they also looked at the effect of their the way they handled missing data by uh, only including participants with complete covariate data in, in, a, in another analysis. So in terms of the results, 55% of the analyzed participants were female. They had a mean age of 55.9 years. I shouldn't be surprised by this, but 31.2% reported baseline habitual fish oil supplementation. So, And that data is actually consistent with the results of another trial in Europe, the EPIC trial. Mm -hmm. They had nine years of median follow-up for mortality and 8.1 years of median follow-up for incidents. During that follow-up period, there were just under 13,000 total deaths. 3,282 from cardiovascular disease, 1,423 from MI, and 664 from stroke. There were 18,297 incident CVD events, 7,754 MIs, and 4,009 strokes. And in general, the associations that they found for incidents were weaker than for mortality. And all of the results were somewhat attenuated in those fully adjusted models that they looked at. So in those fully adjusted models, the hazard ratio for overall mortality was 0.87. And just to give you kind of an idea of the confidence intervals for these, the confidence interval for that ranged from 0.83 to 0.90. Yeah. So so all of these are, are pretty tight confidence Precise. intervals. Yeah. So for CVD mortality, hazard ratio was 0 0.84, 0 0.80 for mortality from MI, and 0.87 for stroke mortality, but that confidence interval is 0 0.73 to 1.04, and we can talk about how the authors interpret that result. Mm -hmm. For incidents, as I mentioned, the results were not quite as strong. So 0.93 for cardiovascular disease incidents, 0.92 for MI incidents, and 0.90 for stroke incidents. They found that for all-cause mortality, the associations were stronger in men and in smokers. And for CVD events, the associations were stronger in those with prevalent hypertension. But in those sensitivity analyses that they looked at, all the, the results seem pretty similar to the primary analysis. Okay. So overall, it appears to, if you take things at face value, it appears like they found a benefit to taking fish oil. Do either of you take fish oil? Nope. I do not. But I felt 
maybe strange for not taking it after seeing how many people take okay, it, at so, least in this group. <laughs> yeah, like almost a third. I couldn't so exactly, this. a third yeah. of people seems a bit fishy to me. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I had to get that. I had to get that out of the way. Okay, I won't. I won't. I won't do that again. Yeah, if it had not been consistent across other studies, I think I. I, I don't know that I would have believed it, but apparently, yeah. I mean, that's, it, that's incredibly high. I, I feel like I don't. When I talk to people, I don't hear people tell me that they're taking fish oil and getting them. Maybe they wouldn't tell me that sort of thing. It's too personal. I don't know. Okay, so a lot of people taking fish oil appears to at least at first glance have some benefit. Laura, what's your what's your assessment of this study? So I I liked a lot of things about this study. So first, really large sample size, almost half a million people. Good amount of follow-up time. I think they followed people for longer than the trials that they mentioned in the introduction. So this is, you know, a cohort study. We tend to be able to follow people for longer than in RCTs. And I thought they did some good sensitivity analyses. They had data on a lot of confounders. They had decent outcome assessment, I think. The biggest limitation in my mind is the exposure assessment. So a really crude mm-hmm. measure, you know, have you, do you usually take fish oil or some variation of that very simple question I think was used for the exposure. So of course, as they note in the limitations, there's no information on dose, duration, or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. exactly how frequently people are taking it. So it's really up to interpretation, what habitual use is. So I thought that was, of course, a big limitation here. And it's also only measured once at baseline. So we also don't have time varying information on this. And we don't know the brand or anything like that. So I, from what I understand, the different components of omega-3 can vary a lot. The amounts of the different components can vary a lot between different brands or types. And I think this also, these types of studies are likely to be confounded by, you know, healthy habits in general, lifestyle, Similar to the last study we talked about, you know, in in observational studies like this, it can be hard to control for that type of confounding. Although I do think they had a lot of confounder data. They did. They I was, you know, I mean, based on the having read other, you know, UK biobank studies, I didn't realize how much data they've actually collected to be able to control confounding. But obviously, just because you have lots of variables to control for confounding doesn't mean you necessarily have removed all the confounding. And it also doesn't mean that you've measured everything well. But it was, I was surprised. It was a lot of variables. Right, definitely. I thought that it was, I I didn't love how many p-values there were in the paper. I thought that, Mm -hmm. especially since they're all statistically significant, probably just because of the large sample size. So I thought Mm -hmm. that was... Mm -hmm. Um, Not super helpful. Music to my ears. (laughs) Also, something I thought was really interesting, if I'm understanding table two correctly, I think they show the proportion of the outcomes in each of the exposure groups. So just the crude analysis first in that the first two columns. And it looks like there's almost no difference in the proportion of people who have each outcome among fish oil users and non-fish oil users. But then once they adjust for age and sex, there is a difference. So I think that's interesting. I think, I don't know if that was discussed at all or if I'm even interpreting that correctly. I'm okay, guessing- Okay, here's the thing. If you, are, if you are not interpreting it correctly, I am also not interpreting it correctly because yeah. I I had the same concern with this. It was sort of, you know, I mean, obviously you could, there could be a couple things going on. For First of all, there they're talking about risks versus rates. Mm-hmm. And so you could have 
identical risks and different rates in theory. But I think more likely, we don't know because they don't actually give us the crude data, is that you have no effect that then the effect appears, sorry, no association in the crude data then an association appears when you adjust for a bunch of confounders. And I don't know. I mean, sure, that's absolutely possible. But you don't see that always, very often. Whenever you see, yeah, whenever you see like you, you've hit the null in your crude data and then it turns into something, I don't know. So, so we had a finding that was perfectly balanced, the amount of confounding perfectly balanced the effect in the opposite direction such that we got back to the crude. Always feels like such a just so story to me that I'm, it always raises alarm bells. Yeah, me too. And it was alarm. It was it was surprising just how similar, like the exact same proportions in a lot of cases of the outcome yep. had the outcome. I do think I think they said uh, or showed that fish oil users were older on average. So I think that could explain this because yep. once you adjust for age, yeah, the older people are more likely to have the outcome and also more likely to take fish oil. So I can see that moving in the other direction. But I yeah, I, that struck me as surprising or maybe odd. Maybe not. I don't know. But um, yeah, yeah, I would just put I it as I would just put it as sort of. It, it just strikes me as you know, it's if it's real, then obviously it's 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 important. If it's but it also you know sort of feels a little coincidental. So it could be either. I'm not disputing it. I'm just saying I always sort of when I see something that is so you know perfectly null that then turns into effect, it just makes me sort of think about it a little longer. Right, and and one other. Point, which I'm sure you guys have thought about as well, is just how interesting, how much people place on statistical significance in general. This is such a good example of it, I think, because they found a hazard ratio of 0.93, I think, for CVD events, which is essentially the exact same, if not less strong than the <laughs> hazard ratio in the RCT, which people say, well, there's no association, only because the confidence interval slightly crosses the null in the RCT, whereas it does not here which could just have a lot to do with precision. So I thought that was, and they do, to their credit, the authors do say that in the discussion. They say something like, oh, based on the point estimate, our results are not that different, but ours are significant. But then the authors of this paper do the same thing with the stroke finding. I think there were fewer stroke events, and so the confidence interval is wider, even though it's in the same ballpark as all the other point estimates. And then they say that that one, you know, the only thing they didn't find an association with was stroke. Yeah. So that's interesting. Yep. Uh, definitely an over-reliance on statistical significance. I, I, It does feel to me, Laura, like you are reading from my notes here because you've, <laughs> you, you've stolen all my, my points that I was going <laughs> to hit. Any, anything else you want to bring up before I go back to Jen? I thought that it was interesting that they only assessed effect measure modification on the relative scale. So we could, this might not be present for a lot of these factors on the, the different scale. Mm-hmm. And that there may be some potential selection bias that they removed people with some missing information. I think, although it, I guess they did also do multiple imputation, but it sounded like maybe they removed people with missing exposure status and people who withdrew from the study. Yeah, they excluded about 6,000 people with incomplete data on use of fish oils. They excluded a whole lot of people. So they excluded those 30,000 with uh, cardiovascular disease and 30,000 odd with cancer. But those make sense. You would exclude those because they already have the outcome. And then uh, about 1,300 were excluded because they withdrew from the study. So relative to the size of the study, that's not dramatic compared to what we saw in previous studies. But yeah, it's still an issue. Okay. Jen, uh, what were your what were your thoughts on this one? 
Yeah, so I I felt a little bit like the introduction of the paper didn't match up with <laughs> the approach. Yeah. So, you know, the the authors make this argument that a good large observational study is necessary both because, you know, vital was maybe too small to detect a, you know, a, a modest effect on on these outcomes, but also because there might be really important modifying factors, which which I completely bought. That sounds really reasonable. Mm-hmm. But then there, as you know, Laura brought this up, their assessment of effect measure modification was was not particularly deep. You know, they put a cross cross product term in their Cox model and kind of called it a day. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I would have I would have loved to have seen more information on that. So you know, they do find these somewhat. I think they're compelling differences on the relative scale for hypertension and for smoking status, which could be really important for public health messaging about this. But at the same time, it just it wasn't there wasn't enough information or detail for me to fully understand what was what was going on. So you brought up the the effect measure modification issue, which I think is, you know, is, was a lot of the justification for this study. Did you get any sense for whether or not these were pre-specified effect modifiers or whether were they really just looking at everything, in which case, you know, finding something? They, they looked at a lot of different things. And I just, you know, it didn't it didn't feel to me like there was anywhere that I saw that there was a, a we said, OK, we said before we looked at the data, we think that there's reason to believe that there might be effect modification by X, Y, and Z, and that is what we tested. Or was it really just throwing everything at it? I, I'm not sure. You know, I have this vague memory of at least one of those, of them having, you know, citing some consistent result from another study, but I can't, but I can't recall now. Okay, well, but so on this, on that subject of the effect modification, and did we need this study? I mean, did, was this a question that was unsolved by randomized trials. And I don't, you know, I'm not, I want to pit randomized trials against observational studies. We need both. But I'm just curious, like, was this an unsettled question based on the introduction that you read? No, I think it's possible. So I, I admit I haven't followed this story very, very no. closely. And so I don't really know how, what the the message of vital was and whether that was largely interpreted as there being no effect because it wasn't statistically significant or whether whether the message was it has it likely has a modest effect i'm really not sure how that how that played out but i don't think that this study added information beyond that that result what do you think yeah. well no so i i mean i don't i certainly it isn't that i have a problem with the study being done i mean more information is always a good thing as long as it's high quality information, it was more just sort of, it didn't feel to me like this was a super unsettled question. Yes, the trials that were done, or the trial that was done didn't find a statistically significant result. But, you know, at the same time, it, it seemed to suggest that there might be some benefit, but it, but overall, it's not going to be a particularly large benefit. And then they justify it, this particular study with, well, we need a bigger study to be able to look for effect modification. So you needed a bigger study to look for effect modification of an effect that you, based on statistical significance, didn't think was there in the first place. I, you know, disagree. That felt a little weird, but I'm also, I also get skeptical whenever anybody wants to look for effect modification 
for small effects or null effects. Because the idea that we would be finding a really small effect and then maybe there's some subset of the population where the effect is really large and in the rest of the population there's no effect. Again, it just it's possible. It does happen. There are some very you know good examples that you could point to where it does happen. But it always just feels to me like it's a just-so story and what are the chances? Yeah, I don't know. I, I It doesn't bother me as much because I, I think, you know, these... <laughs> This has come up before. I know. <laughs> no, because I feel like these biological relationships are really complex. And what if what if there is a, a greater effect for smokers and the smokers who are not going to quit smoking, you know, that this could be an option for them to reduce their risk? It's likely that there weren't smokers in those randomized controlled trials. And so they wouldn't have been able to evaluate that. So I don't I don't have a problem with looking in subgroups when you don't see a strong main effect. But but so basically what you're saying is that maybe there is a group like smokers for whom there is a pretty good sized effect. So yep. taking fish oils for them is really beneficial, but for everyone else there's almost no effect. Yep. Well, that's I guess that's hard for me to imagine how that works in real life. Well, and they don't explain, and it, you do sort of see that at least, you know, taking the analysis for what it is in figure one or the, the hazard ratios for all-cause mortality, you do see a, a much greater association among smokers. But the, I don't feel like that's explained very well what to do with that information in the discussion. I was wondering yep. about that. But I think we all we also potentially would have criti- criticized them if they came up for a, with a mechanism for that. And uh, you're we, would said, right about that. we would have said they were reaching. So you really you <laughs> okay, can't sorry. win with this crowd. In <laughs> that the end. is a fair point. That is a new, so so spot on. So on the nose. Fair, but maybe there's just too many <laughs> effect modifiers that we don't. There's not enough room to discuss all of these different results. Yeah, there were yeah. there were a, a number of them. I will give you that for sure. And I, I, I do think that if they had, had if they had come into this with a, an introduction that said, you know, smoking does X, we think that fish oil does Y, and therefore we think the, the this is why you might see the benefit more in smokers, and then we test that specifically as opposed to just looking at a bunch of different things, I might be more tempted to believe it, although I do take your criticism that I am often skeptical of... <laughs> mechanisms because you can come up with a mechanistic explanation for just about anything they could have just said inflammation right or stress stress and inflammation (laughs) that's everything that explains everything we would all just not be so stressed out and inflamed we'd all just be a lot healthier (laughs) any other okay any other any other issues anyone wants to raise on this one I guess, you know, approaching this question, I think you need better quality data on diet and, you know, other supplement use and physical activity. I think I'm just not convinced that this was a good research question to pursue in this very valuable cohort. I think one baseline assessment of other supplement use, yes, no. I mean, the the likelihood that it's confounded just seems very, very, very high. And certainly the small effect, when you see small effects and you're worried about confounding anyway, it's easy to, in your mind, explain that away. On the other hand, obviously, you know, confounding can go in the other direction. I mean, it could be that confounding actually, you know, there's a larger effect and we didn't see it. But, uh, you know, again, 
my my mind always goes to the to the kind of the simplest explanation, and it seems to me that the confounding is could explain away this relationship. Not that I know that it does. Anyway, so you're not going to start taking fish oil. I'm not going to start taking fish oil, but it is interesting to me that this is unlike most dietary studies, not all, but most dietary studies. And this is one where you can you can actually randomize, and they did. So there were trials. It's not like you know carbohydrates where we really can't do a randomized trial of we could do a low carbohydrate diet but you can't just say we're just going to take you know carbohydrates out of the diet and see what the impact is or things like that so i mean one interesting thing though that they did bring up in the discussion was the design of all the prior trials and how you know some of them used both of the different types of omega 3 some of them just used one the doses were all over the place and so it was very hard to reconcile what seemed like disparate findings because the designs were so different from each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. but here we don't even have any information on dose, right? <laughs> <No>. So <laughs> I guess it's just right. an average, an average <laughs> effect. One other thing I thought was confusing, and I wonder what your take on this was. They said in the discussion section, I think about the fact that they saw stronger associations for mortality from CBD than just CBD events. They said, our study also indicates that the association seemed stronger for CBD mortality than for the incidence of CBD, implying that fish oils could have a stronger effect among individuals with established CBD events. But I was a little confused by that because they removed those with cardiovascular disease at baseline, right? So they did. Am I missing something here? Why would we, how could those people have established events? I guess they could just not be recorded. They could be subclinical or something. So they haven't, yeah. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. I thought that, I mean, it seemed to me that that the stronger results for mortality could just be a result of better measurement of mortality. Right. Or maybe more confounding there in that people who- are like healthier on average and maybe take more supplements are also less likely to die from CBD as opposed, I don't know. I couldn't, I couldn't really understand that very well. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay. I do want to just end this by pointing out that they, in their, I think it was in the results, but it might've been in the discussion. They say, however, the post hoc study power for major cardiovascular disease events in the vital study was only 0.78. I <laughs> really dislike post hoc power <laughs> calculations, so whenever I see them, I get uh, I get itchy. <laughs> All right, so shall we move on to segment two? Sure. So in segment two, we are going to get a little bit in the weeds here, I guess, although I don't want to get too far in the weeds, and I'm not going to force that, but we're going to talk about a paper that is a bit controversial. It was published in JAMA, by first author Mats Stensrud, and it is entitled Why Test for Proportional Hazards? So this will be a bit wonky for those who are not deep into the into the stats, but a very common model, we talk about it all the time on this program because it's a very common model for people to use for data, is the Cox Proportional Hazards Model, which was developed in 1972 as a way to deal with time to event analysis. So what do you do rather than just thinking about risk, but thinking about the fact that people have a time to event and that time is not always observed. So sometimes events are censored. We follow people, say the outcome in our study is is death. We follow people for five years, a few die, but lots of people 
don't die in those five years, but we know they eventually will. And so we have a, a model that accounts for the, the fact that we have censored observations. And what it does is it deals with hazards rather than dealing with risks. And so they say the hazard at any given time is the probability of experiencing the event of interest in the next interval among those who had not yet experienced the event by the start of the interval. And the model makes some assumptions that the hazards for different groups of people are proportional to each other. And because of that, it is considered somewhat standard, I would say, for people to do tests of this proportional hazards assumption. I don't know if you all consider that to be standard, but it has been my experience that people generally test for these proportional hazards assumptions. And the point of this article is to say to them, that just makes no sense because hazards are never going to be proportional. And the reason for that is hazards don't remain constant. The risk of an event, the rate at which events occur change over time. So if you just think about mortality, if you started the clock at birth and you followed till death, till, you know, 100 years, the risk of death is quite low or sorry, it's, it's somewhat high just after you're born, it then drops down and stays very low until you reach old age, at which point it starts to heat up. And then therefore, the rate of events at which events are happening over time, the hazards are changing, and therefore, the effects comparing any two groups, we wouldn't really expect them to be proportional over time. And so they say a Mortality hazard ratio, for instance, 0.7 for the treatment versus placebo cannot be interpreted as a constant 30% mortality decrease in the treatment group at all times during follow-up. Rather, a hazard ratio of 0.7 means that on average, treatment decreases mortality during the follow-up period. And that, you know, intuitively makes a lot of sense to me. And yet, this is the standard way that people generally do things. So my question is... Is this really one of those groundbreaking papers where we all sort of look at things and realize, you know, we've really kind of been doing things wrong for a long time? Or is this one of those things that's actually just a bit overblown? And yeah, it's true that maybe we don't meet the assumptions most of the time, but, you know, it's a reasonable approximation and therefore it's worth doing anyway. Jen, what's your what's your take on that? So I think this is actually an important reminder, and especially, you know, one that appeared in a, in a clinical journal. Mm -hmm. A colleague at BU in the biostats department and a prior guest on Free Associations, Ludovic Trinkart, has done some really nice work on how hazard ratios are widely misinterpreted by the uh, medical community and often equated with risk ratios, which then leads people to overestimate the effect of, of treatment. So I think this is a nice piece because it reminds us all of what a hazard ratio is and mm -hmm. how it should be interpreted. And I think, you know, when I read it, it, it occurred to me, I think some of the issue is, is with the word testing, you know, that we're testing the assumption, mm -hmm. right? Like in a way it's a problem of just semantics because 
because that's we don't need we're making the assumption right we don't need to to test it i think that was part of the point of the of the article but they go through and they you know they provide these three scenarios where you would not have proportional hazards for different reasons and in some of those situations maybe it would make sense to report this weighted average of of the true hazards over the whole follow-up period. In other situations, it wouldn't. And I think on a on a case-by-case basis, it's just important to evaluate where, you know, what sort of message is most important to provide. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, and I think that's a reasonable take. Laura, you are the one who is most recent to their completing their training. Uh, what's it been? Several hours? <laughs> a whole five days. A whole five days. Congratulations, by the way. (laughs) And so I'm curious to know whether or not this was, you know, as you were taught, was this considered, is this considered to be still standard way of teaching things? And if, if it is, are you convinced by the argument made in this article that maybe we don't need to do that? So my memory of being taught Cox proportional hazards regression in my biostats classes was that we were taught about the assumption of proportional hazards less to do with, so we actually were taught that the the test, so I like that Jen, you brought up this idea of like, maybe the phrase test is the problem. Cause I do remember being taught, you know, don't rely on the tests because they're underpowered and not necessarily meaningful. We were taught more to look at the plots visually of the survival curves and the, I think it's the log of the negative log of survival to see if they're parallel and to more visually and subjectively make a decision and also taught some, you know, alternative regressions if you don't meet the assumption. So I do think it was, it was definitely not glossed over, but I, I feel like we got a nice nuanced understanding of the, you know, the benefits and the pitfalls of it. And I think this article, like Jen said, is a helpful reminder of like exactly how you're supposed to interpret the hazard ratio as a weighted average. And I do agree that in general, I think we do a lot of statistical tests that might be flawed and underpowered. But on the other hand, I think this is actually an assumption that people, like maybe it's not a bad thing that people actually do check for this because a lot of assumptions we don't check for, like there are so many assumptions in most regressions, like logistic and linear, do we normally test for those? I think maybe this is because it's like in the title, like Cox proportional hazards regression, people think about it more. I'm not sure, but so I'm not sure we should be telling people not to pay attention to these assumptions. I hear hear you. And and obviously I I would agree with you. I think we want to make our assumptions as explicit as possible, but I think they're, to me, they're going further here than just saying the problem is testing. It seems to me what they are saying is not even just, you know, sort of doing visual inspection would suffice or not, not that it wouldn't suffice, but that what they're saying is, you should actually expect violations of of proportional hazards because effects are not constant over time. And so we would expect things to change in those trends of those hazards as you plot them. So, and I don't know if it's as, if their point is just simply that about testing, which I agree with you is, is part of the issue, but it seems to me more that also that, that we really shouldn't be expecting this. Right. And that, that may be true, but I thought that the examples given some of them were, for one thing, I think this is mostly a, a, an issue with clinical studies and medications, uh, for example, 
or screening. I'm not, I'm not sure whether we have the same issue as much in more observational studies. I was trying to think about how this would relate to my work, but also I thought that in some of the scenarios given, I wasn't hundred percent sure these were just issues of proportional hazard. So for example, I think one of the examples was about changes in an effect over time because of potentially even reverse causation or, um, so like in the, in the screening and cancer one, the hazard ratio of screening might actually look harmful at first because cases of cancer are being picked up that were already there, but then over time it would show a potentially protective effect, which to me seems like more of an issue of when to start follow-up or when, or whether to lag the exposure. So more of a question of how you do the analysis rather than an assumption of the model. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's just me saying, I think it should be a case by case decision and less of a general problem. Mm. Yep. I think, I think some, some of the focus was on, you know, just, I don't know, fully understanding your data. And it's so easy to run a Cox model and get a single effect estimate, but it might really not be telling you the the important story. And so that's part of what I took away from this. And, you know, the, the article yeah. ends with yep. saying, you know, we go ahead, report hazard ratios, but consider also reporting measures of effect that are more clinically useful, like differences in survival times and, you know, things that a patient or a clinician could actually do something with. Yeah, and I, I'm convinced you, you've convinced me there that obviously we really do want to understand our data as best as we possibly can, and looking at survival curves gives us a lot, you know, gives us information that we wouldn't have if we just spit out the the hazard ratios. So I, I'm convinced by that, and I, but I do also think you know your second point or their point that you're saying quite eloquently is that we should think about other other approaches, and the just because hazard ratios are easy to fit doesn't mean they're necessarily what we want. I know the 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 group that that is put out this paper often what they'll do is they'll use the Cox model but then they will simulate survival curves from that so you can actually look at them and look at the differences between them rather than trying to get some kind of a summary measure and I think to me that is a a pretty logical way to go. So, all right, any last thoughts? I don't want to belabor this point because it is it's a very technical one, but I just thought it was worth getting your thoughts on. No, but I I just that I do think that that's sort of goes back to just always looking at your data, whether visually or otherwise, you know, over time and in subgroups before you run a model, which is maybe, mm -hmm. maybe a larger point here. But I'm curious, what was, I think you said it was controversial. I, I haven't looked at any reactions to this piece. Could you just briefly mention <laughs> why? So, so when I say it's controversial, what I'm referring to is the fact that I, brought something up on Twitter the other day. I can't remember what it was. And it was apparently a controversial statement. And someone asked if I was trying to incite a Twitter war. Oh. We might as well get into the debate over whether or not we should test for proportional hazards. So <laughs> I don't know oh, what wow. I'm referring to. Okay. I need I just, to go look at just, Twitter. Yeah, I just know that that is considered to be a controversial area. So I'll just leave it at that. All right. Well, why don't we move on to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing. I'm going to I'm going to go first this time because I have a really short one. And the reason why mine is so short is because I couldn't actually get the article that I was interested. All I have is the abstract and I couldn't get the article because we are stuck at home and my VPN is not working. So I can't actually get access to many of the articles. But I thought this was a perfect 
article, even though I'm going to be honest, all I really like is the title. The abstract itself, I think, leads me to skepticism that I don't want to have about this particular finding. (laughs) But um, I thought it was perfect for our current situation. The title is Sharpen Your Pencils, Preliminary Evidence That Adult Coloring Reduces Depressive Symptoms and Anxiety. Do I believe that is true? Not necessarily, <laughs> but I want it to be true. Uh, this is by first author Jade A.M. Flett. And I'll just give you the abstract here. So she says, adult coloring books have flooded the market with titles alluding to therapeutic value, yet is unclear whether they fulfill that promise. Here we tested whether adult coloring was related to improvements in psychological outcomes. So they used female university students. They had 104 of them. It's always university students. They were randomly assigned, so this is a trial, randomly assigned to a coloring intervention or a logic puzzle control group. So an attentive control group. I like it. Participants completed an inventory on of psychological measures, so depressive symptoms, stress, anxiety, nourishing, resilience, and mindfulness. And then they participated in a one-week intervention of either daily coloring or logic puzzles. And then following the intervention, Participants again completed an inventory of psychological measures, and what they found was coloring participants showed significantly lower levels of depressive symptoms and anxiety after the intervention, but control participants did not. How much were they reduced by? I don't know because I can't get the article, (laughs) but they concluded that daily coloring can improve some negative psychological outcomes, and it may prove to be an effective, inexpensive, and highly accessible self-help tool for non-clinical samples. I don't know if there's any truth to that, but right now, <laughs> I would really like to believe that is true. Do you guys do adult coloring books? <laughs> I have before. I enjoy it. And have they relieved all your stresses, care, and, and woes? <laughs> I can't say all of them, but it does It does seem to help to, <laughs> to focus on something like similar to like doing a puzzle or something, you know, which is a habit I've picked up now in this time is doing puzzles. It is yeah. a good one. I will say there is a puzzle being done in this house as <laughs> we speak. Very relaxing. So. Same, same here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I've never, I, you know, my daughter, there are a lot of color book, coloring books lying around. I don't know. I mean, the term adult coloring book, I feel like, I don't know <laughs> yeah, what that's that not means. A good, okay. Uh, I don't know what kind of coloring books you're doing, but. Oh, um, boy. Oh, boy. No, I, yeah. Okay. Sorry. I need to admit. Can you edit that to uh, something more appropriate? <laughs> Um, All right. Uh, Jen, what do you got for us? Okay. So I, first of all, I just want to mention that, you know, I'm sitting at my home office window here and have been for the last couple of hours. And I have watched the same middle school aged girl bike past my house at least 20 or 30 times. I'm not exaggerating. She must be restricted to a certain Mm -hmm. distance. And so she's just going back and forth, but it's been, it's been a fun, a fun view. But anyway, I just, all of my usual amazing and amusing sources have different content these days. So it's been a little more difficult to find the types of pieces that I would, I would normally be interested in. But I found this one in the Guardian that I think basically just illustrates the camaraderie that's happening right now, which is you know, again, one of the silver linings. So uh, this ended up getting picked up by a number of sources. So maybe you've seen it, but 
Matthew McConaughey decided to be the bingo caller for an assisted living community in Round Rock, Texas. Apparently, people at the facility had asked him to do this last September, and he initially did not take them up on their invitation. But now that he's sheltered at home with his mother and children, he hosted this bingo night. And they they include a really cute picture of the kids and his mom and him on Zoom, you know, calling out the bingo numbers. And then there are these adorable quotes in the article about how excited the older residents were to have a, a visit from Matthew McConaughey, which I which I thought was sweet. Apparently, my own, own grandmother, who lived well into her 90s, maintained a pretty strong crush on George Clooney. And I was mm. just kind of imagining what it would be like if, you know... George Clooney showed up via Zoom to play bingo with her. Like that's that's fantastic. <laughs> now, did you did you actually see any of the bingo? I did not watch. Was there a, vi- a video of the oh, bingo? No, I don't know. But I'm just curious as to whether he went. You know, B thirty four. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> I bet he did. I like to imagine it going down that way. Yeah. That would be great. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> that's There's been a number of really cool things like that. That there, that, yeah, it has not all been. It's not been all doom and gloom, so that's yeah. that's super nice. Laura, what do you got? Okay, so I found a study, uh, a little bit meta here. So it's this is from 2007 in the Journal of Information Science out of the Israel mm-hmm. Institute of Technology. And it's yep, called... one of my favorite journals. <laughs> Amusing Titles in Scientific Journals and Article Citation. So they were assessing whether the use of humor in scientific article titles, so if you think about like silly, funny punny article titles, Yep. whether that is associated with the number of citations that an article receives. So they okay, had, before, you, yeah. before you go on, does sharpen your pencils count as <laughs> an amusing title? You know, I think it would, although I had some trouble understanding exactly how they assessed amusing. They had only four mm-hmm. judges and these okay. were psych grad okay. students and they rated the degree of amusement and pleasantness of titles of articles published across 10 years in two psych journals, so Psychological Bulletin and Psychological Review. And they used students of psychology so that they would understand um, some of the terms specific to the discipline. And they were instructed to use the Oxford Dictionary definition of humor, (laughs) which was, was at the time maybe, a quality of being amusing or comic. And pleasantness, the definition was giving a sense of happy satisfaction or enjoyment, friendly and likable. So I wasn't totally sure why they controlled for this pleasantness score, but their main goal Mm -hmm. was to see whether the humor score was associated. And they found that maybe surprisingly, maybe not, having articles that were two standard deviations above an average score, so they use a Likert score of how humor, uh, how funny a title was. Those articles, so the most highly amusing titles, actually received 33% fewer citations. Ooh. Yeah, so they also did some nice analyses controlling for length of title, number of authors, year of publication, article types, so a regular versus common. So they, they controlled for quite a bit here, and they even looked among papers from the same author to see whether, you know, the citations are really just based off of who's writing them and that they found that the, the association held. And they decided that this might be due to either the fact that researchers don't take those papers seriously enough to cite them, which I can understand, <laughs> you know, thinking even if the contents are serious, that maybe they wouldn't be 
or that it's a sign mm-hmm. of, you know, mm-hmm. the paper not being as scientifically robust. Could be that they actually are those papers of lower scientific quality. Or another possibility, which I thought was interesting, is they said these papers might just not show up as much in scientific databases because the keywords might not be matching up as well. Mm. Hmm. So I thought so that was what, pretty did, interesting. Oh, sorry. Did they look at whether what journal the article ended up in? Like, are you are some journals? I mean, obviously, the BMJ Christmas issue mm-hmm. would be more inclined to to publish an article with a humorous title. But I'm curious whether there are other high impact journals that would just never publish right. funny, t- funny yeah, titles yeah. as a policy. So these were the, they limited it to two journals within the psychology oh, only field. Two journals. Yeah, okay. So okay. I think there weren't, they didn't seem to see differences in those journals, but I do wonder whether this would be true across different fields, mm-hmm, uh, whether mm-hmm. this is something that is only in the psychology field or, you know, I think maybe like these types of titles are more common in the psychology field. I'm not sure, but yeah, found out to be pretty interesting. Well, that's disappointing because <laughs> yeah, I really, I really like the idea of of funny titles. Yeah. So. Do you have a funny title that you're proud of? No, I'm. <laughs> oddly enough, I go very, I get very conservative when it comes to titles. <laughs> trying to think, scientific papers? No, I don't think I've ever published a, a fun title. You yeah. Have. I've, I have. I have. Tell us. Well, I mean, I was a co-author on the sniffing out significant yep. P-value, P-E-E <laughs> And that value. one was very highly cited, wasn't it? it? Yeah, I think it, I, I haven't followed it lately, but yeah, I think it did okay. But it was I've one of a- the very first Amazing and Amusings on this program ever, ever done. <laughs> Yeah, I can take no credit for that title. That wasn't that was that wasn't me at all. And then I have I've tried to be a little more creative with the commentaries. I think there's there's mm, more lee, yeah. leeway there to be. But but yeah, I study I study prostate cancer. I mean, it's you know it's not it would be easier in psychology, I imagine, yeah, to come up with more too. amusing titles. I think that's fair. All right. Well, thank you for that. That is the end of our program. If you've got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at PopHealthyX, or you can tweet me at, at ProfMattFox, or Chris at ID.Gill, or Jen at Jennifer R. Ryder, or Laura at Laura Sampson 611. I just checked it. I was correct I, the first time. I, I did too. I looked it up while I was while I was waiting. So we want to thank Leslie Talali and Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast and Nick Guler for sound editing and teaching us all how to say the word Mark all at the same time. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you will download our next episode. 